Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The race is on. This is the first podcast brought to you by The Race, the new home of motorsport. I'm Ed Straw, and for our debut, we'll be telling you a little about this exciting new project and taking listener questions on the big topics of the 2020 Formula One season. Is Sebastian Vettel headed for the exit door at Ferrari? Can Red Bull finally fight for the championship? Will Lewis Hamilton become a record breaker? And can anyone break into the top three? We'll have a rotating cast of guests on our F1 podcast, but today it's our editor-in-chief, Glenn Freeman, and one of my fellow F1 correspondents, Scott Mitchell. Glenn, this is all very exciting and new. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Ed. Yeah, a bit tired of you putting the long hours getting the race ready for its upcoming launch, but really excited to be trying something new and delighted to have the likes of you, Scott, and Mark Hughes uh, along for the ride as well. And very happy, Ed, that we're uh, launching a podcast very quickly because I know you've been asked over the winter if you'll still be doing one. And uh, here we are. Yep, love a bit of podcasting. and We're going to be doing plenty of that and there will be further podcasts to come on top of our F1 one. So let's, uh, let's just quickly head over to Stockholm where Scott Mitchell is waiting. Are you being excited for our, uh, our soon-to-be-parted-from European cousins? I'm absolutely buzzing, Ed. Uh, but also mainly because... While you had questions about whether you'd be doing a podcast, I was really, really surprised to hear that there were so many people that were asking if we'd be carrying on doing a podcast together of some kind this year. So as much as you always like to say that you can do better than me, here we are, back together again. So I'm looking forward to another year working together. Yeah, it's going to be uh, very interesting. We've got plenty of F1 races to travel around to. We'll have a, a big team on the ground at uh, at each race. Obviously, there's been a lot of interest in the race. So before myself, Glenn and Scott get into the reader questions, let's hear a little bit from Global Head of Motorsport of the race, Andrew van der Berg, who can tell you a little bit more about this project. Well, we're a new uh, digital motorsport platform that's uh, hopefully super serving the super fan with world-class motor racing content obviously we're going to have a, a web platform that will be where you'll get your sort of traditional in-depth uh, news news analysis technical analysis and all the other great content that you would expect um, but we'll also be prolific in video through our youtube channel we'll be making a host of different podcasts much like this one but also branching out across the other forms of motorsport and will be prolific across social as well and that's not just tweeting links to our stories that's creating content primarily to exist uh, on those social channels so i've had a few questions asking if we're doing anything in print and it's a hard no um that's not anywhere on the horizons but what we are hoping to do is uh, create the ultimate destination for uh, the motorsport fan 
And obviously, there's been lots of interest in you've been announcing various journalists, myself included, and various staff members to join. So can you run through the uh, the team? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, one of the most exciting things about being able to be involved in this project. I think I've been incredibly lucky that for a Formula One team, I've got yourself, uh, Mark Hughes and Scott Mitchell. I think they're you're spanning a, a whole host of skills from a, a profound understanding of how the performance of the cars work, uh, an amazing contact space uh, across the sport, and a, you know a newshound sense that you, we really need to, to sniff out the best of those stories. So, I, honestly, I, I don't think I could have asked for a stronger lineup than that. And of course, it's not just F1. We've had some other announcements of correspondence in other categories, and there's lots of interest in what we will be covering, what we won't be covering. So, what, what can you reveal about? The, the categories that will be, be getting the coverage? So there's going to be um, five key pillars to our coverage. Obviously, Formula One, uh, as it still remains the uh, the single biggest form of motorsport in the world. Uh, we'll be doing MotoGP. I believe that the uh, our lineup for that coverage will be announced this week, possibly even today, depending on when you're listening to this, which is the second largest. Uh, and we will be treating all these um, championships in the same way in terms of the, the depth of our coverage. Uh, we've already confirmed that uh, Sam Smith, is our formerly correspondent uh, with uh, support from Peter McCall from a technical side of things, which uh, reinforces our commitment to in-depth coverage there. Uh, and then we'll also be going into IndyCar uh, with the same level of commitment. Um, what's happening over there with Roger Penske's organization taking over, plus, I mean, just the fantastic racing there's been. Uh, we think there's a, a real potential growth and uh, for our audience to, to enjoy there. And the final thing is we will be um, covering to the same level of... Uh, let's say, quality and professionalism, uh, motor racing esports or sim racing, as it's been known uh, to a lot of people uh, in the past. We won't obviously be doing the same type of coverage because it doesn't lend itself to that, but we will be uh, applying the same level of rigor and professionalism to our coverage there. Um, We'll be announcing a few more details about how that will actually work, but the idea is to try and bring together a a diffuse world. There's there's been a lot of... um, I think you could call it tribalism for whether it, you know, you're a, a console or a, a PC gamer, or even within the games and that, you know, whether a set of course or a iRacing or R Factor or whatever. But uh, we will be aiming to to cut through all of that and to to surface the best content. Um, that's not to say we won't be covering anything else. Uh, absolutely not. You know, um, we will we'll have a significant presence at Le Mans, and we will be doing all big stories from uh, the other championships around the world. It's just that our primary focus will be onto those. But we'll be very attentive to uh, the fans' needs and desires. And if uh, there's a groundswell um, of interest in something else, then we will expand our coverage to cover that in the future. Uh, it's just that to, to begin with, I had to make a, a call on where to put the resources and they're the, the five places I decided to do it. And obviously, people listening to this podcast, that's one thing that's, that's out there. We've got social media accounts running. What's the, the general time scale for, for other strands of the race? So we will we'll continue to announce the, who the journalists are covering the remaining series over the rest of this month with hopefully another one or two podcasts uh, and certainly a video dropping in that time uh, the website will go live in the first week of february i'm not going to commit to an actual date just yet but it will make sure that we're we're up and running um, before the first uh, f1 car launches and certainly before f1 testing kicks in that's when we're really going to uh, be showing our true colors in terms of the depth of the coverage we can uh, will be doing with moto gp testing uh, alongside that as well so um, a whole series of announcements come over the next month well, it's an exciting project and very happy to be uh, part of it. So thanks very much, Andrew Anderberg, for revealing a few a few hints of what to expect from the race. Thanks, Ed, and I look forward to seeing um, more of your work coming out over the next few weeks. 
shall we actually get on with what we're here to talk about, which is the uh, upcoming Formula One season? We did ask on Twitter for some of our prospective listeners to send in some questions, and we've got, uh, well, a massive response, actually, loads to get through. So we're going to try and rattle through some of these as quickly as possible. Some quite big talking points here, but we're going to address them all fairly shortly and sharply so we can get through as many as possible. Uh, so let's start off with Ben Croucher, who asked, is Red Bull's driver model still sustainable? And is it blocking arguably more talented drivers from making it onto the grid? So this is about whether, I guess, Red Bull's picking the right drivers and whether it's got enough drivers on its conveyor belt. What do you make of it, Scott? The the saga that they had with Alex Albon and Pierre Gasly last year proves that they didn't have a, a Verstappen or a Ricardo or someone to... To, to, to step up into the into the senior team, but part of the reason they did that is because they 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 mismanaged the Carlos Sainz Junior situation. The way he's performed at McLaren would suggest that he'd have stepped into that Red Bull and been much more competitive, a bit more maybe adaptive than than, than Gasly was. I don't think it's a problem that Red Bull has in terms of producing drivers because although there is this little bit of a of a gap immediately below F1 right now. Or if Dan Tickton hadn't fallen out of favour last year, they'd have a probably a ready-made Toro Rosso driver waiting in the wings. And they've got a couple of guys sort of below that level that are pretty good. So I don't actually think they're making a massive error in terms of identifying talents. I just think they've maybe been a little bit too hasty or maybe they've put a little bit too much emphasis on, on Verstappen in the last few years which meant someone like Sainz fell by the wayside. And then because you have you have like your sort of absolute top-tier driver, then someone just below them. As soon as you move remove that second-rung driver, there's a much bigger gap, and that's what they're struggling with. Well, certainly were struggling with in the middle of last season. I think Sainz probably played a part as well in that situation because he got a bit impatient. And I could understand why, because he was in Torosso for quite a long time. Did, yeah, kind of get leapfrogged, as Scott mentioned. Verstappen kind of... Uh, I think they call it, he sort of broke the grade curve for everybody, didn't he, in Red Bull for a bit. But these things go in cycles. And I would say, actually, the top end of the junior ranks in the last year or two, since we had that great graduation, really 12 months ago, of top F2 drivers all coming into F1 and doing well, you do tend to get a kind of downward turn straight after that. And I guess that's the same for Red Bull. It's just almost that there are no top-line drivers for them to pick at that level right now. And we've seen that in the past. We've seen drivers who perhaps we knew were never going to make the step up from Toro Rosso to Red Bull, but they stayed at the second team for a while because no one else was ready. So I think there'll be another cycle. The other interesting part of that question, actually, is the fact that when Red Bull doesn't really have any ready-made stars, that's four seats out of 20 that effectively no one else can get. And that's why we end up with random situations like Brendan Hartley being called back and even Albon as well, a former Red Bull junior who actually went off and was doing other things and was going to race in Formula E before he got the call-up. So that's the other interesting part of the question, but I don't think there's anything wrong with Red Bull's model. I think you have to say that over the past 10 to 15 years, while it's a harsh programme, and some people might have some gripes about drivers who were who were dropped, etc., it has, by and large, put some very, very good drivers into Formula 1, and it is putting serious money into, into young drivers based on ability, which is what everybody says they always want. So I think overall, a good thing, even though, as you say, Glenn, it does go in, in, uh, in ebbs and flows, should we say, in terms of driver talent. Well, we have inevitably a series of questions about Sebastian Vettel. They're all connected. Graham Howey asks, will this be Vettel's final season? Uh, we've also got Jason Hannafin, who says Vettel's future and how crucial is this season uh, for him? 
And then we also have uh, George Donnell on Twitter asked which drivers are on the proverbial hot seat this year. And I think Sebastian Vettel is the is the obvious one out of contract at the end of the year. So how do you see Vettel's situation, Glenn? Uh, well, I think his seat is red hot. Probably won't be that comfortable to sit in. I've been thinking about this over the winter because there was a theory that Vettel didn't necessarily drive badly last year, but it may be just that the car suited Charles Leclerc more than it suited him. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, he showed too many signs of fragility in 2017 and 18 as well. And those weaknesses perhaps weren't exposed in the same way when Kimi Raikkonen was his teammate. And I think Leclerc's come in, he's going to get stronger as well. So I would expect that this is the year that Leclerc establishes himself as Ferrari number one. And then the question for Vettel is, does he accept life as a number two and stay at Ferrari? And does does he fall into the Raikkonen role where you become the guy who doesn't really upset the apple cart. I can't imagine him doing that. But the other big question is, where else can he go? I don't think there is really an option for, for Vettel, especially because Verstappen signed that new deal with, with Red Bull. I'm, I'm pretty confident that if Verstappen had left Red Bull, then Vettel would have had a brilliant soft landing there. Um, Red Bull would have taken him back with open arms. He's still on great terms with everybody there. And they really believe in him as a driver. So I just think that... <laughs> I just think that Vettel's run out of options, which is crazy for a four-time world champion who dominated this spot ten, you know, ten years ago. We were just about to get about to see the beginning of Vettel's absolute peak, weren't we? But who'd have thought that um, in a few years it would it would go as south as it did? I agree with what you said, Glenn, about the fragility that he showed. Because while I do believe that the car wasn't necessarily to his liking, and he exhibited that Jensen Button trait of being good or or being mega on his on his good days, but being a bit off it on his bad days. But I don't remember Jensen making so many errors in battle and under pressure and stuff like that. And that's what's let Vettel down. So I think he I think he needs to prove to Ferrari and to himself that it's worth carrying on in F1 beyond 2020. The other thing is, obviously, Jensen definitely had that sort of narrow operating window. I think, Ed, you've spoken to Jensen about that and spoken to him about Vettel. But I, I didn't see Jensen causing trouble in the same way Vettel did. You know, you think of things like the team orders confusion and the accident in Brazil that I do think was his fault. I don't really think Jensen, say when he was alongside Lewis Hamilton, wouldn't play up in the same way. And that's why I can't see what Vettel does next if he can't go to, as Scott says, somewhere like Red Bull. There's not a top team available. And it's, it's kind of Fernando Alonso syndrome again, except Alonso's troubles tended to be more off track than on it, whereas Vettel seems to be causing the problems on the track. Well, this is the problem for Vettel. I think Ferrari can handle a driver who's not as quick as Leclerc, as long as he's thereabouts and scoring big points. But they need him, A, not to be causing trouble, not to be driving into him into Lagos, not to be just creating friction within the team. And B, they need him not to be driving into people and making big errors. And there have been far, far too many big errors in recent years, which is why I think currently Vettel can earn a new Ferrari deal. But I think now it's probably looking less than 50-50 chance in his favour so he's got to have a really strong and collaborative shall we say start to the season and I think that inevitably makes him the, the most under pressure driver. Now we also have Stephen Gate who asks with Max re-signing at Red Bull and the rumours of Honda leaving after one year's extension does this mean Red Bull has secured Mercedes engines? Why would Max walk away from a Mercedes engined Red Bull? Well Scott what do you make of, uh, of that uh, that suggestion that perhaps there could be a Mercedes engine future for Red Bull. I was just gathering my thoughts. Sorry, that was uh, that that took took a while for me to try and. Scott was just considering the idea of 
an F1 without Honda where he can't be the Honda correspondent. Well, I, and I think he looks terrified. I'll lose my job. I've got nothing else to offer. <laughs> um, I, it's, that's not, I'd be utterly stunned if that happened because you'd need Mercedes to the Mercedes works team to withdraw and probably one of the customers to disappear as well, first of all, to make it realistic for them to supply a team. But also because Honda Honda doesn't want to leave F1. It's they're making an effort to to cut costs because they still need to 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 just convince, I guess, the board that it's worth committing longer term. But they've they've got a deal to twenty twenty one. Max's deal runs to the end of twenty twenty three and conversations between Red Bull and Honda have long been underway to extend their deal to twenty twenty two and twenty three. So I don't see that partnership going anywhere. The only the only thing that will, will make a difference is if for for some inexplicable reason, Honda makes a massive backward step this year, which considering they're evolving the engine uh, concept and the regs are staying the same, I, I can't see that happening. All signs actually point to them making an even bigger step and, and getting on on terms with Mercedes or at least really close to Mercedes. And the Red Bull aero platform improved massively last year. So I, I can't see anything other than a title bid. That would be a failure if they if there wasn't one. But I, I I just see that Verstappen Red Bull Honda alliance. I think it's it's the nearest thing he's ever going to have to what Hamilton's been able to build at Mercedes. Obviously, without the massive rule change that that has given him a massive advantage. I think if anything, it tells us more about the possible Honda future. I'm sure that Verstappen's new longer term deal has got some contingency in there that it, that it does require Honda to carry on for the longer term beyond the current deal. So I, I just can't see Mercedes powering. Red Bull, certainly not while there's a works Mercedes team, a team in, in, in Formula One, and obviously they have plenty of other customers at, at the time. But I think the real question with the Verstappen deal is, yeah, what are those options and get-outs that could be triggered? Because he's in such a strong position, every team would want Max Verstappen if they could get him. So he's probably been able to dictate some fairly flexible terms to Red Bull that means that Red Bull and Honda need to deliver and deliver well in order to be absolutely certain uh, of keeping him. Uh, we've also been asked by Ansi Rulamo about the, the driver market. This is related to Max Verstappen. The, the silly season, everyone predicted, seems to be losing steam. That That is true in the, insofar as Leclerc and Verstappen have been uh, signed to long-term deals. But, but Glenn, there's, there's still plenty of interest with Lewis Hamilton out of contract, Daniel Ricciardo. It's one of those ones that could go either way at this stage, couldn't it, in terms of the, the silly season? Yeah, if you remember, we, we thought that we were going to have a boring, silly season in the summer of 2018. And then Ricardo signed for Renault completely out of the blue, it seemed. I think even Red Bull thought they had Ricardo ag- agreeing to the deal that they'd offered him. And then it all, that all went a bit crazy from there because it, it created this domino effect. It is a shame to have t- probably the two most important drivers for the future of F1's driver market are already locked down this early in Leclerc and Verstappen. I suspect, I mean, you were talking about, you know, why has Verstappen signed for Red Bull? I, I think there must be a Mercedes and Hamilton factor there. And I reckon Verstappen's probably had an indication that there won't be a lead Mercedes drive available after this year. Because if there was a chance of that, he wouldn't sign his Red Bull contract yet. Red Bull would wait probably until the last minute if they thought there was a chance of keeping him. But I think Ricardo's a big one because Renault massively underperformed last year. Really disappointing. They're paying him a lot of money. But how long do you want to be paid a lot of money to drive around in a team that actually regressed from being the fourth best and didn't close up to the leading cars? They they fell behind a resurgent McLaren. So that'll be interesting. The second Mercedes seat is always interesting. 
you know, we're going to be looking at maybe Ocon's off the radar for that. Now he's ended up at Renault. But, you know, if George Russell can start troubling the back end of the midfield in a hopefully more competitive Williams, will there be a point that Mercedes go, actually, let's give him a go? They seem obsessed with giving Bottas only one-year contracts. So there's always that Bottas intrigue. He either starts the season well and you think, well, he'll get another deal. Or if he struggles next to Hamilton, he's immediately vulnerable. The Vettel thing is going to be really interesting. We've already talked about that. And obviously, Red Bull can be absolutely bonkers at any moment. They could just decide, no, we're going to do this. Oh, we found some kid in GP3 or whatever else. Let's put him straight into F1, uh, which is obviously harder these days. But I think there's enough at the moment. But I can understand where people have gone, this is going to be a great silly season. All the top drivers potentially out of contracts at the same time. And then by January, we've got two of the best seats and two of the best drivers locked down. We've ended up at the point I actually expected us to get to, but about seven or eight months earlier than I was hoping. Without the suspense. I was hoping we'd have at least a few months of fun. Uh, but we, we, we might still get something. You know, there, there was that, that the idea of Hamilton going to Ferrari is obviously massively appealing. But the fact that they've set out their stall with Leclerc for the next four or five years, it doesn't. It doesn't obviously completely rule out Hamilton going there for one season or two seasons. It just makes it really even even less likely than it was before. It'd be very un-Ferrari, wouldn't it, now? Yeah, exactly. And I agree with what you said about with Verstappen. He's probably had an inkling that he's not going to have a better option, basically, than to stay with Red Bull. I'm sure there are ways for him to, to get out or things that he could get out, um, or ways he could get out of that contract. But I, I'm interested to see what happens with the second Ferrari seat, the second Mercedes seat, and the second Red Bull seat because I would expect Lewis to re-sign at Mercedes. But as you said, if you've got the opportunity for Russell to pop up somewhere or Ricardo to either get the Ferrari move or even go back to Red Bull because they still think really highly of him, he didn't leave on bad terms, even though they had that that surprise split with with Renault. Um, and if Vettel does a job, why would um, why would Ferrari want to want to want to change that up? Because you've got a four-time world champion there that might be, might actually behave himself. In which case, maybe Ricardo goes to goes back to to Red Bull. So there are still there is still enough intrigue for me to care about the silly season. It's just not quite what we we all hoped it would be. Ricardo's actually the one who's in the most interesting position. You can make a case for him. I, I imagine Ferrari's probably the seat that he's eyeing with most interests. There's a vague chance he could end up back at Red Bull. I'd be surprised if he wanted to go back and alongside Verstappen. There's a slight chance of Mercedes, but Renault want to keep him if they continue. But McLaren have had interest in him in the past. They still seem to be improving in this season. That could be of interest if he can't get a top team. Even Racing Point, which is having big investment and improving. So Ricardo's almost the driver who you can make the biggest list of credible places he could end up. No, I totally agree that Ricardo's the one now who can probably trigger the most activity in the driver market. Again, a word of warning for him, though, because on my F1 2019 career mode in the game, he's gone to Ferrari alongside Vettel and he's having a torrid time. The car's not very competitive. He can't get near Vettel. He's not even in the top 10. So, uh, you know, could that could be predicting the future. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, F1 2019, I'm sure, is a good, uh, a, a, a good guidance. And of course, I guess that means that Glenn Freeman might be a viable option. How are you performing? Yeah, I'm doing really well, actually, at Haas alongside Kevin Magnussen. We've sorted out the troubles of 2019 and uh, in the 2020 season, it's going very well. So if all of this happens, uh, I'll be wishing I'd put a lot of money on it, actually. Glenn, can you um, can you like send an email or, or a text to Gunter Steiner and tell him what you found out? Because I'm pretty sure he'd absolutely love to know how you turned it around. Because by the end of last year, I wasn't sure they actually knew. 
Yeah, I still don't think they know. It's quite interesting. When I signed for the team, actually, the first email I got from them was, we've had a really bad pre-season and now it's your job to sort it out. Um, so apparently I was called in as a driver and an engineer. So uh, I'll make a note of what I did. I'll, I'll send him a, a message actually saying, earn some development points, spend them around all areas of the car, and then you'll be competitive. I can't believe they haven't thought of that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, they need to be better with the way they, they spend their uh, development points. Well, let, let's move on. We've got a couple of questions here related to number of cars on the grid. Ian Kelly says, should there be an increase to 24 cars on the grid? Because there's many talented drivers unable to get a seat. And Gakula Manikam, if I've pronounced that correctly, says, how many teams is too many teams in the, the current form of Formula One? Well, Scott, I mean, there is provision for 24 cars on the grid. We could have that many. There's space for them. But obviously, we've been we've been set at, uh, at 10 teams for a few years now since uh, the, the, the new influx of, uh, of 2010 have gradually uh, fallen by the wayside uh, over the years. So, I mean, how many teams should there be? Is there a chance of there being an 11th, 12th team in the, in the coming seasons? I think there's a chance, but the ability to have it as a competitive new entries is gone now. So I actually think that the limit, uh, in t- if you want a proper healthy championship, I think it's now 10 teams. And I don't think that's because of an inherent Formula One limit. I would like to see 12 teams. I think a 24-car grid would be pretty fever. Uh, but what what are you going to do now? If you come in as a new team, I think you're just stitched up from the start because the opportunity was to bring a team in where they could spend money, t- time and money, preparing for 2021 and joining a championship with a more even playing field amongst your rivals and not on the back foot. But now, because they're saying no new teams for 2021, any new teams will come in after that, you've got this these massive new regulations and every other team on the grid is going to have a year or two years of nailing these regulations and learning the, the pitfalls and stuff like that. And you're going to come in at a disadvantage. So I, I just don't, I don't see re- realistically, unless a Megabucks team comes in, and is able to hit the the cost cap to its absolute limit and, and, and nick a bunch of really experienced engineers and designers, et cetera, et cetera. I don't see how someone can come in after 2021 and, and, and do a, a particularly good job. Well, the Haas team obviously is the most recent example of a model that's sort of worked, but there's question marks about whether they'll continue and they've struggled to get the, uh, the things that have worked financially. And the, the other side of things is that, the teams themselves, obviously, if you've got ten teams, that's ten teams sharing the uh, their share of the revenue. But if I had to have an eleventh or twelfth, that means that things are diluted. I mean, one of the questions there was how many is too many teams. Now we have seen that the peak actually, Glenn, in Formula One was nineteen eighty nine, one of my favourite seasons, when there were thirty nine drivers attempting to uh, attempting to qualify, and obviously that's that's definitely not sustainable. Fun as non qualifying. That was awesome. Pre qualifying was amazing. It, it was great, but that's that's not really a sustainable model. So, so how many is the the sort of right amount for a sustainable, workable Formula One? Obviously, the teams would say, "Yeah, no more," because we don't want to share the money. But what do you think is economically viable? Well, given the uh, era that I started following F one properly in, when pre qualifying was a thing, but obviously you had thirty nine cars at times trying to get into a Grand Prix, but only twenty six started for me i've always wanted f1 to get back to 26 cars but the 2010 influx of teams that you mentioned has kind of put me off that because i thought this is great more cars on the grid it always feels like 20 isn't really enough but just seeing those teams struggle so much and you know as scott said if someone comes in late now it's probably going to be the same unless we can find another gene haas or two are prepared to spend money spend a lot of his own money to do it the way that he's uh, done it 
I'm now I'd now be really wary. And this is why when I hear these teams try and put themselves out in the news a bit, don't they? And there's always someone, whether it's Ross Braun or Jean Todd, sort of dismissing the idea of these teams. And I think we've got to be really careful because Formula One is super competitive at the moment. And you know, Williams had a, have just come off a really bad season. But compared to bad teams that we've seen in the past, they're still a lot closer to the pace. It's just that the level is so high. It's super competitive. So I think just having bad cars at the back of the grid for the sake of it, actually, we've seen quite recently, it doesn't do F1 any good. 10 teams is that good balance between it doesn't look unhealthy, you still get a decent spread of the cash, and you're, you're able to be competitive. I think if you lost someone like Haas now, I'm struggling to see how a team comes in and even gets to that level of competitiveness because, Ed, you mentioned Haas coming in and the most recent example of a team coming in with that kind of model and doing a good job straight away. But I don't think if if that had, if Haas had come in in 2018, a year after that major regulation change, not 2016, the year before, I can't see them doing anywhere near as well. What matters is how effective and strong and stable the the teams are i wouldn't like to cap it at 10 teams because i think you you do need to be willing to take an 11th or a 12th team if they're they're good credible stable organizations there's enough money in formula one for it to work but this is when it all comes back to the the big problematic question which is the whole new concord etc you know there's already talk about teams creating a a kind of buy-in for new teams which is a little bit different to the old bonds that new teams used to have to pay where they they paid a lump sum and then they got it fed back to them over the year which was a way to test and prove that they did have the resources to do it this time it would be kind of you you buy in and the the other teams share that buy-in so it's effectively kind of this almost this this franchising sort of system but you don't want to close the doors completely but you do have to have a very a very very high bar i mean i think 2020 Two twenty four, twenty six cars on the grid is, is is perfectly sensible. We could even go like they did in the first half of ninety three when F one went down to thirteen teams and gratuitously for the first half of the season they decided only twenty five cars were allowed to start. So uh, poor, poor old Luca Badur and Michele Alberetto in the uh, Scuderia Italia Lolas used to have to fight it out in the first part of the season for who would not qualify. Although if memory serves, I think Ivan Capelli didn't qualify the Jordan at uh, Interlagos after a, a big shunt. So yeah, we, we so, so there are. They do that? Uh, it's, a, it's a very strange move. Yeah, there, there were twenty-five car grids at that period. Uh, so on to our next question. This comes from Frank underscore eight eight nine nine. I'm not sure if eight eight nine nine is his surname or not, but uh, the, yeah, the question is: uh, Despite having more titles than any other team, have Ferrari actually underachieved historically, considering their resources and the fact they have had their own test track? I would have expected even more titles from them. Glenn, what do you think? Ferrari as underachievers? Yeah, I mean, Frank mentions that they've won the most titles, but that's partly down to how long they've been around, i.e. since the start. Uh, yeah, Ferrari's history is littered with periods of underachievement that in many ways are, are more famous than the periods of dominant or the, the most recent period of domination, of course, being the Schumacher era. But that's that's almost the exception. That's the time they got it right and they put all their resources to good use, but the rest of the time, yeah, they. You look back through, you know, the seventies and the eighties, and yeah, the eighties was a particularly painful time for Ferrari, and there were constant questions being asked: of how can you have more money than anyone else, your own test track, as Frank mentioned in the question, all this at your disposal, and you're not achieving anything? And I think 
Ferrari is the most under-pressure team in Formula 1, constantly. We know that when Ross Braun went there, he couldn't believe the obsession over the newspaper clippings and that sort of thing. And, and I think that, that still plays a part today. The Italian media is all over Ferrari like a rash. So, yeah, I would say, really, for, for what they are, for what they get. Remember, we were talking about the Concord Agreement recently or you know the, the commercial agreements that we have in F1 at the moment. Ferrari gets an unfair share of the cash as well and still can't win enough championships. So... I think he's right. They've definitely underachieved. Especially because the the target is to win the title. So just because they've been winning races in recent seasons, that doesn't really, for, for me, sort of mitigate against the overall or the overarching failure. Because if you look at McLaren and their fall from grace, and obviously they did a really good job last year, it'd be good to see them continue that. But their their sort of failings are much more pronounced because of how bad it got. So because they fell away from podiums and, and victory contention, it looks really, really bad on McLaren. But actually, if you're judging teams purely on the the ultimate goal, which is to fight for titles and f- to win titles, and especially when it comes to winning championships, you know, Ferrari's no better off in the in the, in the modern era than, than, than McLaren. So while I'm not saying that Ferrari is in any way in, in, in as bad a shape as McLaren's in, I think it's. A, I just think it's. A, it's a good good example of the fact that while Ferrari has been there or thereabouts, it hasn't done the job in over a decade now. So that that is a that is a fundamental failing, and it it goes. They go through these big fallow periods, don't they? So something's not quite right. It's almost as you say, Glenn. That Schumacher era with the, the with the mega team that they sort of put together is the exception rather than the rule. And just because they've been around for a long time. It doesn't make them the biggest or the best team. Now, Glenn, the next question comes from Lee Mills. This is uh, asking us to have a look into pay drivers, as it seems this is one of the only, or at least very few sports, where this happens. Now, this is quite a big topic, so we can only really have a quick, uh, a very quick go, go at this. But pay drivers in general, they're just a fact of life, aren't aren't they? We do see, I guess, Nicholas Tiffy is bringing money to the team. Obviously, Lance Stroll has connections to Racing Point ownership. I mean, Sergio Perez, who is an excellent midfielder performer there is heavy sponsorship behind him. So is is there any end to this or is it just the way things are in such an expensive sport? Yeah, I think that's the problem. Motorsport is expensive. You need money to, to climb the ranks. There was a part of that question, Ed, that you didn't read out. It referred to team owners employing their sons, which I guess was a, a reference to the strolls. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think it's a, a necessary evil that we have to accept, you know, because potentially if Lawrence Stroll didn't, uh, lead the buyout of Force India and create Racing Point out of that and put his son Lance in the team, F1 could have lost the team or could have had a an owner may have taken over who wasn't as credible or wasn't as committed, might not have stuck around for very long. And it, it's just the way it is with something that's so expensive. As a comparison in the question to a football manager putting his kid in the first team, that occasionally does happen uh, in the past. Uh, but... There's obviously there's not the same issue with with running costs um, for football teams and, and obviously the players don't need to provide the funding so I can't see it going away I don't think it's been that bad until recently I think we actually went through a phase where I think Perez is a good example actually he's a driver who deserves to be on the F1 grid he just happens to bring money and the more of those we can get the better I think and. In some ways, it's up to the drivers and their management teams to find the cash. Well, let's uh, move on to the next one. We've got quite a few questions about Zandvoort here. 
Uh, there's a few different dimensions to it. Uh, Tim Richardson asks, why Zandvoort's new banked final corner will work when Indies failed? The Brothers Hunt asks, will a race at Zandvoort be a mistake given the limitations of the track itself and limited opportunities for overtaking? My old friend in Brazil, the, the veteran journalist Lito Cavalcanti, asks about how Pirelli and the teams will, will cope with the different uh, tyre pressures. Well, I can start this one off in terms of the tyres. It's a 32-degree a banked uh, corner at Zandvoort. So it's about twice the banking at Indy. I wouldn't say the Indy banking failed. I would say that it's Michelin that uh, failed for for various reasons in terms of the the way the stresses were deployed. There were they they diamond uh, grooved the track, which slightly changed the loading. And obviously, by its very nature, uh, banking does put extra pressure or uh, stress on the tyres. Pirelli have said that they'll cover it by raising tyre pressures and tighter restrictions on on canvas because by regulation they have to provide the same construction and compound for every race so that that should be okay but scott as for zandvoort's as a as a race itself do you think it's going to be uh be a good track for 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 the the wheel to wheel battle um, no i was trying to think of a really polite way of saying not a chance <laughs> i think it's going to be i think it risks being a really boring race but I think I do think it actually has the potential to be one of those Grand Prix where as an event itself it kind of takes away from that a little bit because I hate Monaco <laughs> I really don't like Monaco as a, as a Grand Prix um, and while there are elements to it I mean I've been I've been quite lucky because although we didn't see like those hardcore races last year's race with with Hamilton holding on with old tyres and when Ricardo won there after the MGK failure, got a Grand Prix there that they had that have a, an interesting story underneath, even though it's not a particularly fun race to watch in the traditional sense. And obviously, it's Monaco, so it's a big event in itself. So there's a different kind of attention. So I think with Zandvoort, you're going to have a race with an amazing atmosphere. Um, it's going to look really cool with packed grandstands and stuff for Max Verstappen. I'm sure it's going to be orange as hell. Um, and you never know, you might have something where you have Verstappen hounding Lewis Hamilton for 50 laps or something. So I'm not going to rule it out as a as a, as a, as a good event and maybe an interesting Grand Prix, but I don't think it will be necessarily be a mega race. Yeah, I think Scott's spot on there. Uh, it's going to be a mega event. I think it's great that the Dutch fans who have descended on so many other races around Europe are now going to get their own race. They deserve it. And Max Verstappen should have a home race. You know, he's he's the future of F1. But I, I can't see it being good on track. You know, I, I've covered a lot of races at Zandvoort with with high downforce cars like Formula Three and the DTM, and qu- qualifying will be awesome because modern F1 cars on parts of that track will be amazing. But the race, I think, is going to be uh, terrible. I think. I think. Unfortunately, I'll, I'll agree with that. The next question is from Richie who says, with a big change in regulations on the horizon, how will teams approach this season from a car development point of view? Will the smaller teams with less budget benefit from sitting this year out and prepare for 2021 in hope of gaining an advantage? Glenn? I don't think teams do that anymore, do they? Yeah, everyone, we all look back to the 2008-2009 scenario where you had you know, Honda wrote off the season and then what became the Braun was this amazing world beater at the start of the season. But we've had some regulation changes since then. I don't think teams operate in quite that way anymore they're bigger so they can carry on developing two cars at once even even the slightly smaller teams have a lot more people than they used to so I don't think we'll have the classic we always look for it don't we We always ask people if if, if a team starts a season badly we say oh you're going to write this year off and focus on next year and they always say well well no we've got a development program and there's not really a way to accelerate 
the 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 upcoming car by writing off this one and and there's there's still a lot of carryover internally on the cars as well even under a big regulation change so as as fun as it used to be when a big regs change would shake up the order i don't see the midfield teams seeing that as an opportunity for that reason plus they all want to do as well as they can and be as far up the championship as they possibly possibly can do honda was in an exceptional position back in uh, in 2008 so ideally exceptionally rubbish well exactly ideally they'll all, they'll all want to start the season well and be able to trans uh, transfer their full resources onto the 2021 project as uh, as early as they can although all of them every team will have already started on 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 2021 uh, the wonderfully named mclaren hippo asks will lewis hamilton surpass all of michael schumacher's records scott will he i reckon he will actually uh i it's which is a crazy crazy idea um if you if you'd thought about that well, i guess when when schumacher set those records or you know retired for the first time you'd think that's never get no one's going to come anywhere near it but no one could have predicted the way that mercedes and hamilton have dominated f1 so if you take how successful he's been over the last few seasons the win records pole records uh, the podiums etc etc i i just i just think if mercedes get anywhere near having a title challenging car we know that Hamilton's good enough now and relentless enough to bank seven, eight, nine, ten wins over this this season. Because the argument that it's getting harder and the rivals are getting better, it doesn't it doesn't have any weight to it because he's just equaled his best ever win tally in a single season with eleven victories. And this was when Red Bull and Honda turned it up in the second half of the year, and 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 Ferrari had its own performance. So I. Hamilton and Mercedes is just a really annoying juggernaut, isn't it? I just I can't see anything really getting in its way. I think we can say at the moment that Lewis Hamilton will almost... Uh, I mean, I think he'll definitely pass Michael Schumacher's win records. The championship's record in terms of beating it, it's every chance he'll match it. Beating it is a little bit harder because 21 is a new rules reset, but that Mercedes team is where we expect him to be, and, and 21 is so formidable. I'd be surprised if they're not, at the very least, in the fight, uh, fight come, that, uh, come that season. Now, we've also got a question from Blue... Well, it's more a statement than a question from uh, Blue Coat Neil asking for a bit more Toro Rosso Alpha Tori coverage. Glenn Freeman, could you provide a little bit of that? Yeah, uh, the name change to Alpha Tori is rubbish. And as we record this, the team haven't even changed their Twitter handle yet. So they're obviously about as committed to the name change as we are. And uh, it's going to be a nightmare having two alphas on the grid and they're both spelt differently. Uh, but on a more serious point, I think Toro Rosso had its most relevant recent season in 2018 when it was running the Honda engine and you know Honda was coming out of the McLaren nightmare and now it was oh what's Honda doing down at Torosso really interesting Scott got to hang out there loads and talk to them but since then Red Bull is now the Honda story and Torosso this comes back to our earlier point about Red Bull's sort of driver uh, conveyor belt is kind of stalled at the moment so the Torosso drivers aren't even that interesting at the moment great they got a couple of podiums last year um but that shouldn't have been grounds for a terrible name change. Move on to the next question. An interesting uh, one, this one, from JWBR on Twitter, who just says a little thing, how livery affects team perception. Glenn? It's an interesting question. We know from the times where teams have significantly changed their colours that fans have a huge interest in that, probably in a way that we didn't know before the internet era, where we had a lot more data on what people are reading and what, you know, we get more feedback, just like this podcast is, you know, effectively constructed our first episode from what our, fan, well, our fans, Formula One fans, want us to talk about. But I, th- I think liveries 
are really interesting. But it's a, for me, it's more the perception of F1. I think if you get into an era where all the teams keep the same corporate colours every single year, it makes F1 and the grid look a bit boring. And any team that's willing to, to shake it up, I think back to when, when Force India went pink, when Haas went black last year, people are really interested in those teams all of a sudden. So I think it's a good way for some of the smaller teams to generate a bit of interest. And I remember when Torosso went to its bright blue livery that it has at the moment. That was great. But then he just did the same thing for all the years that followed. And I've never forgiven Christian Horner for the year where he said Red Bull was going to have a radically different livery. And they just moved the word Red Bull to a slightly different part of the car. And I thought that was a huge letdown because it was the year when they did the uh, camouflage livery in testing. And that generated loads of interest as well. And Red Bull could do all kinds of things with their liveries to generate, you know, ultimately as a marketing company, but they seem to pass that up in F1 where they're too corporate. So I really think it's important that F1 teams remember that their liveries are quite an interesting way to to get talked about and get noticed. And I'd hope, I mean, I don't know, who would you guys expect to see a different livery from this year? Yeah, Alpha Tauri, I suppose, has the potential to, to, to change, have an identity that matches the... Like visually that matches the name, but I don't really know how you, what an Alpha Tauri looks like. So uh, unless you know, maybe black with some silver on it, or black and white. I don't know. So I'm I'm going to do some research and look at their website, which I have looked at in the past. It's sort of it's quite dark, dark and spacey and purpley and green. It's got a bit of a Aurora Borealis uh, feel to it. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that that would be that would be a good livery, certainly. But yeah, I'd want to see some uh, more interesting liveries from uh, from teams just changing that but obviously they have set corporate identities so entity like red bull has to all intents and purposes of the same livery since it came in in 2005 but it'd be it'd be more fun if they did uh did change uh scott jake sanson asks which is the next team other than the big three that will win a grand prix oh um that's not an easy one to answer (laughs) that's Um, why we went to you yeah thank you cheers for the stitch up um I, i i actually now think mclaren I think if you'd have asked me 12 months ago, I'd have said Renault, no doubt, because there's no one in the midfield that's got the resources or the 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 platform to build to the point where they can get and challenge the top three. But Renault had such a backwards 2019 and McLaren made such a good step forward. And we saw the way that Sainz and Norris performed as well. They're, they're in a position where if they make the right gains on the race team side and they get the 2021 rules right, I think they can, I think they might be able to finally end the wind drought and they at least seem the best placed one. I know Renault and you mentioned Racing Point earlier as a team with big plans and investment and stuff. Maybe they do have bright futures, but I just see them as being a bit too much of a mess in the short term. Whereas McLaren, I think, is a bit more positive. I think Renault will probably pull out of F1 before they win a Grand Prix. Well, inevitably, Glenn, with pre-season testing not too far away, people are asking, uh, asking about that. But we've got uh, TC at th underscore conway on twitter asking for your favorite winter testing stories and anecdotes from years gone by you've got a few good ones haven't you yeah i've, I've had some fun at f1 testing uh, over the years the one that stands out to me would be um crossing swords should we say with michael schumacher um which as a, a 90s fan of damon hill and jack villeneuve was was quite exciting uh it was 2011 and mercedes had started testing at her f really poorly and uh, they're under pressure, I think, in, in Germany in particular, because this was a, obviously the second year of what was supposed to be buy Braun, uh, paint it silver and win the championship immediately. And they seemed quite well off the pace. And then Schumacher had a day where he was quick. And uh, I'd just been covering DTM for four years at the time, so I had some reasonable contacts at other parts of Mercedes and kind of got tipped off that 
the phone call might have come in to show a bit of pace, shall we say. Um, the the other phrase for that would be glory run. Didn't go as far as saying to Michael, did you do a glory run? But I, I, I kind of constructed a question along the lines of, uh, how important was it to, to to show some of the pace of this car today? And the way his face changed was absolutely terrifying. Um, I think we've all seen Michael Schumacher's sort of the stern face that he used to have, the presence that he had in the paddock, you know, um, did carry. He was an intimidating figure, I think, on and off the track during his time in F1. And uh, he took a long, a long deep breath, paused, scowled at me for a bit and then uh, said something along the lines of, uh, he basically said, you don't know what you're talking about. And in a slightly uh, disrespectful way, I told him that I do know a reasonable amount, which upset his manager, uh, Sabine, at the time as well. And then we just sort of had an argument for a couple of minutes to the amusement of all the people that were around us. Uh, I wrote an article about that experience and got torn to shreds by all of Michael's many uh, passionate fans on the internet. Uh, but we came away from that test, Ed, I seem to remember saying that we thought Mercedes were about two seconds off the pace. And how far off the pace were they at the first race? Can you remember? I seem to remember it was 1.9 something. And I think the first, if for memory, I think the first three races there, the lead Mercedes was 1.9 something off the uh, off off the pace. So, yeah, it's uh, certainly not Michael Schumacher's fault that Mercedes wasn't there. On the no, pace not there. at all. And I should say, actually, that I, I was pleased to get another chance to have a few interactions with Schumacher, actually, when I, I think I... I fill in for you at Valencia in 2012. When he got his podium. Yes. And uh, that weekend, his media sessions kept clashing with, I think, Lewis Hamilton's. And everyone was going to McLaren because Hamilton and McLaren, their season was a bit up and down that year. So there was a lot of interest in it. And uh, Michael was very courteous with his time. I always found him quite easy to deal with, actually. Uh, you know, you ask him a fair question, he'd, he'd always try and give you a, a proper answer. Uh, we also have a question from Alex Davy, which is saying, uh, will Red Bull and Honda deliver a car that Max can mount a title challenge with, given Red Bull's tendency to start a season slowly? There's obviously quite a lot of uh, interest in that. We've also got Phil McWilliam asking, do you think the title fight can be between Lewis and Max? On base, they both have weaker teammates, while Seven Charles will end up taking too many points of each other. But I think the key question is, can Red Bull actually be a title contender? And crucially, to do that, can it start the season strongly enough? Scott? Uh, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't, and that's why I said that it, there has to be a title assault, and anything less will be a failure from this year because Honda made good gains last year, and they made such impressive progress to the point where they were back at that end 2018 level of performance, weren't they? Last year, where they were fighting for for poles and they were strong in qualifying, and if they were if they weren't quicker than Mercedes, they were at least quicker than Ferrari. So. They got into a point where you're just like, okay, well, if you've got a few months of development in you, then surely you need to make the next step. Um, Red Bull is adamant that it's going to start the season stronger than it did did last year because there are no, there's no aero rule change to trip them up. There, I think they, I think they got them wrong. Um, I think they'd got to the point where with the the previous front wings, they were manipulating the airflow exactly how they wanted at the end of 2018 and the direction that they took at the start of 2019. I think they misjudged it slightly and they spent half a season catching up. So you've got a situation where the, the aero platform should be strong. Uh, the chassis development last year was good in general anyway. And, and and Honda looks good. And Max is obviously top of his game at the end of last year. He's in a situation where he's the clear number one. Um, he's got everyone pulling in the right direction. Red Bull love him. Honda love him. He's got a new contract. Um, Ferrari's Ferrari so presumably will do its best to implode at some point unless there's a massive change there and I think that's what's going to un- undermine Charles Leclerc 
uh, is is ultimately the fact that Ferrari haven't put together a, a title challenge. So I think Red Bull is the best bet to to challenge Mercedes, and obviously that'll be Verstappen over Albon, subject to some kind of absolutely massive surprise. Nick H asks, how would you reintroduce frailty and attrition back into F1, given some of the best days had bags of both? Glenn? I don't think you can. I think the teams and uh, manufacturing and technology is just too good now. I, I totally agree with the question that unreliability was one of those added elements of jeopardy in, in old days F1 that meant that a race could be worth watching all the way to the end, even if someone was a long way out front because there was a fair chance the car might break down. That just doesn't happen anymore. And that's why people like Ross Braun are talking about ways of finding other, well, other ways of introducing jeopardy into F1. And that's why there were conversations about qualifying races or reverse grids and that sort of thing, because you're never going to get back to the jeopardy that we had before where someone could break down or, or could get into, you know, Ayrton Senna, uh, Brazil 91 style gearbox dramas and they have to limp home. That's very rare now. And I don't think it'll ever come back. Yeah. Ultimately you can't encourage it because unreliability is an absence of quality control. It's not a thing in itself, is it? Uh, next question from Robbo on Twitter is, which of F1's new guard are most likely to topple Hamilton or will he retire top of the heap? Let's have one-word answers from each of us on this. Scott, you first. Verstappen. Good. One-word answer. Glenn? Leclerc. I'm going to say Verstappen, but Hamilton probably will retire top of the heap. Oh, that's not, not a one-word one answer. You, right. you cheat. I make the rules. I don't follow them. Uh, we've also got some questions about Esteban Ocon. Uh, David Ball says with uh, Ocon's potential at Renault, will he outperform Ricardo? We also have Drew Gibson, noted motorsport photographer, who says, please, nothing about tyres. Sorry, we did mention tyres earlier, but asks how Ocon will fare against Ricardo. And Ben Rothberg also asked, does Ocon stand a chance against number one driver Ricardo? Glenn, what do you make of Ocon's hopes at Renault? I think it's fascinating. I was really interested last year to see Hulkenberg versus Ricardo because I thought we'd finally get an answer on just how good Nico Hulkenberg was and the fact that he's not in F1 anymore probably means that we got that answer, which is a shame. Ocon is another one who's been tipped to be the absolute real deal and Ricardo's the perfect benchmark for that. We've seen him in a race-winning car. We know how good he is. I think he's comfortable now at Renault. I don't know what you guys think. It looked to me like he, he developed, Ricardo developed as the season went on. So there's a very high bar there for Ocon and I think we'll find out quite quickly, actually, just how good he really is. My suspicion is that he is an absolute top liner and that had Lewis Hamilton perhaps walked away from F1 a bit sooner, Mercedes probably would have put Ocon in the car and he would have quickly become their lead driver. Yeah, it's going to be one of the most interesting battles, I think, of the season. Now, P.O. Trek asks for an an honest analysis of the state and direction of Williams racing. Well, obviously, Williams has had a a very, very tough time the last two years. Last season was its its worst season in Formula 1. And the previous season was also its worst season in Formula 1 as a a constructor. So, you know, they're underachieving desperately. Yes, there are things that go against the team. They're probably the only truly commercial team and that there's not a parent company or shareholders injecting money so that is difficult they are an independent team that is difficult but none of the disadvantages they've got the financial disadvantages etc excuse the level of performance it was not anywhere near good enough this year they have to take a a step forward and at least be dicing properly at the back of the the midfield there's no reason why they can't do that and then they can at least take some steps forward as as, uh, the years go on but yeah Williams it's it, the the future of that team does depend on it getting itself together properly, and I think there have been a lot of changes. 
Uh, we've also seen the questions about what Pat Simmons was saying about future engine tech. Scott Luke Harrington says, where do you see the future direction of F1 powertrains going? Could we see hydrogen fuel cells or even fully electric? And there's also a question from Zoe Timbrell saying, I'd like to hear more discussion. Pat Simmons recently spoke about this at a conference and sounds like F1's taking an interesting approach. Now, this is a... This is a massive, massive uh, topic. And in fact, Jan Sargent uh, at Forex also asked um, about future engine regulations and noticing tweets about two-stroke engines. This is a huge topic. So the very, very briefest sort of summary, Scott, where do you see F1 going? Or is it still up in the air with the next generation power units that we're going to see? It's 2025 or 26, isn't it? Those those are due. Yeah, it's not, it's not set firmly. I think it'll be a hybrid engine. Um, I think anyone who sort of equates formula one with um with going electric or sort of some kind of thing with formula e or whatever that's wider the mark because fe's got that electric side covered uh, f1 needs to find alternative ways of of becoming more sustainable and more efficient so i think a hybrid engine simmons has talked about um yeah moving away from uh, petrol petrol based engines as well so maybe hydrogen fuel um, and the yeah the, the the talk of a two-stroke engine is quite interesting. Simmons says that there are elements of two-stroke technology um, that basically are being applied in road car uses that give you know more than fifty percent fifty percent efficiency, and it's just it's not what it used to be in terms of uh, in terms of two-stroke because Glenn. I'm pretty sure that when anyone mentions a two-stroke engine in your company, you have the same image that I do, which is a bunch of two-stroke TKMs being bump started and loads of smoke coming out the back, which isn't massively environmentally friendly. It'd be a great image for F1 though, wouldn't it? All the mechanics stood around the back before the parade lap and uh, having to run along with the back wheels in the air and then drop them. And then Lewis Hamilton reaching over, getting the choke. (laughs) And then dispersing wildly, desperately trying to avoid the mass of cars behind them. (laughs) Absolutely terrifying. I don't know how more dads didn't lose their legs during that era of karting. Well, we're running a bit low on time, but I wanted to get through as many as possible. So let's have a few quick fire ones here. Short answers. Uh, Jose Gonsalves asks, how you get more fans to F1? Should there be two tyre manufacturers to achieve this? Glenn, should there be a tyre wall? No, it would be expensive and I don't think it's the best way to make racing more exciting. Well, a question from someone we know well, motorsport journalist Andy Hallbury says, which F1 drivers today could you see wanting to do the Indy 500 if they could? Um, There's no one who stands out immediately to me. So if I had to pick one for Andy, because he's gone to the trouble of asking the question, I'd say Daniel Ricciardo. He's got an appreciation of the wider world of motorsport um, and American racing. We know that his, his number three is based on Dale Earnhardt, which is obviously NASCAR related. But it could be the sort of thing where I could see him going, you know what, I fancy a crack at this. I've also got a question from the Bat Marker who said, should McLaren expect a drop in performance and reliability from their Renault power units in anticipation of the switch to Mercedes? If so, how many spots will they fall in 2020 standings? I'm going to say no, they shouldn't expect a drop in performance and reliability. Renault will still want to supply good ones. Obviously, the works team will get the very best ones. They don't deliberately manufacture good and bad engines, shall we say. There's always very, very tiny tolerances that can make minute differences, and I'm sure they'll they'll keep the best ones in their pool, but any works team would uh, would do that. I'm not convinced McLaren will fall any spots in the constructor standings. At worst, they're going to be fifth, and I'm, I suspect they'll be fourth. Uh, the main question there is whether Renault can, uh, can take them on. Also got a question from another person we know well, Anthony Rollinson, another well-known Formula One journalist. When will F1 cars revert to sensible dimensions? Uh, Scott when there's a massive massive shift in technology that that means we don't have to have huge cars to accommodate these kind of hybrid engines with with electrical gadgets and stuff 
Yeah, they're, they're too big at the moment. That's what the question's getting at. They, they look ridiculously long, and yeah, that can't come soon enough. But I agree with Scott. I think it's a way off. Sorry we haven't got through all of the questions, but we wanted to get through as, as many as we can. And hopefully we've had quite a good whistle-stop tour of some of the big talking points of the season. And in future podcasts, we'll go into some topics on a little bit more depth. Now, one thing we do have to address is Scott Mitchell was determined to have uh, the final word on this podcast. And he has been asking his random question on uh, Twitter. Do you have a jingle for this? Not as yet, but I might try and generate one uh, over the coming weeks. Something suitably light-hearted and whimsical to sum up uh, sum up Scott's uh, lack of gravitas when it comes to to this one but Scott would you like to explain what the question you asked on Twitter was and some of the more amusing answers yeah I wanted to have a little bit more of a, a, a light-hearted bit of interaction with with our listeners so I asked sort of where's the most fun or random place you've spotted a driver um, and I got uh, I got a really surprising uh, number of responses which is really awesome we had the usual usual things i'm gonna i'm gonna ignore things like people meeting them in car parks or at races or stuff like that because that's pretty that's pretty standard but i've got i've got a decent list of some of the better ones uh dan thompson said that he bumped into lewis hamilton on santa monica pier while uh, lewis was walking his dogs with his mum apparently and he also sent a picture so that is that is definitely legit um i thought i'd include that ed because we know how much you love dogs so i thought that would be a good start to this sort of mini segment um Richard Randall said, not a driver, but he was in a, in a restaurant in Nice a few years ago and Eddie Jordan turned up on a bright yellow bicycle which still had the Jordan F1 team logo on it, <laughs> which I thought was fantastic. Uh, one, for, one for Glenn, obviously as our resident Jacques Villeneuve fan. Uh, Eric Stenborg, who is, um, who is part of the, uh, the, the Viasat Formula One coverage out here in Sweden, he messaged to say that uh, Villeneuve uh, was in a music store in Copenhagen around 2002 and he bought six figures worth of electronic music equipment and paid with a black Amex card. <laughs> I he was going to say he bought six copies of his own album. <laughs> I think he would have been the, the only person. Uh, there was a good one from Matt Burkett who talked about uh, he was having his 18th birthday dinner in Marbella, obviously, uh, when uh, Martin Brundle and Alex Brundle walked in to collect a takeaway pizza. Uh, and he 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 sent he followed that up with a picture the 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 selfie that they took and then Alex Brundle chimed in on Twitter because Matt had, co- had tagged him in the tweet uh, so that was also that was also legitimate. I'm also going to include a slightly selfish one. My brother Luke uh, messaged to say to point out when he when we both met Nigel Mansell at a clay pigeon cart circuit because Nigel was out uh, running his kids at the time and I remember I got my race suit signed by him and Luke got his England football shirt signed by him because that was the only thing that Luke had sort of to hand basically but my mum threw my race suit in the wash later uh, after the weekend and the 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 autograph disappeared so that was pretty that's pretty rubbish the only other thing I wanted to flag up was Damon Hill was the most popular driver in terms of who who's been spotted he cropped up in six of the 30 odd responses that I got <laughs> which I thought was uh I don't really know why I don't know if there's something about Damon that just makes him either approachable or um he's maybe he's just out yeah, in public maybe a lot. he's just sort of wandering around trying to get noticed um but I, I I should also do a little shout out to Paul Gibson who got properly behind this and just reeled off this mega list uh, he obviously lives around Brackley so he must see must have seen over the years loads of people that have just been going to Silverstone. So he's he's seen Damon in a petrol station in 
Um, he, Pedro Lamy pulled over and asked him for directions in late 92. Um, he says that he saw Sterling Moss on a tube in London. Uh, the same day, apparently, he saw Mick Jones from The Clash, which is pretty cool. He stood behind Sergio Perez in a queue at Subway. And he also sat next to Martin Donnelly at the Crew Arms near Brackley. He said he didn't want to bother them because they were eating and off duty. But apparently his girlfriend didn't care and started to talk to them and got autographs on his behalf. So quite a nice mix. We got, I got, it was really, like, it was really cool actually. Lots of responses. I'm, obviously we don't have time to go through them all here, but I will share a few on, uh, on, on, on my Twitter. I asked, I know that you retweeted me, Ed, um, but basically I would just, I'm just quite curious to see sort of just I'd like to see a few more pictures. I want proof of these random random encounters. So if anyone listening does have a few fun ones to to, to throw my way, just just lob it to me on Twitter at smitchellf1. Well, you can also follow the race on your social media channel of choice. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Just search for We Are the Race. We'll be producing regular podcasts, so please do subscribe to this for all the F1 chat you could possibly need, and keep an eye out for some new podcast feeds to come in the future. Thanks for all your questions, which have really helped get us off to a flying start. The race is on, and this is just the start.